Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Hi, podcast listeners. It's Rhea with you once again with Nonprofit Lowdown. Today, my guest is Judy Levine, who is the Executive Director of Cause Effective. And today, we're going to be talking about a very important study that Cause Effective did regarding fundraisers of color. Welcome, Judy. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So, Judy, tell us a little bit about yourself and what Cause Effective does. So, first of all, I have to tell you that Cause Effective itself is a nonprofit. We are a fundraising strategy firm. And we are a nonprofit. And I start with that because I think that our stance is really important, that we are, we are in the mix. We are not sitting on the sidelines telling the field what to do. We are engaged in the same struggles and the same challenges and the same daily obstacles as those of our clients. And I think that gives us a humbleism and a, that's a word, and a realism uh-huh. about what it takes to raise money and make social change. Cause Effective is a nonprofit that works with mostly New York City-based nonprofits on fundraising strategy and governance strategy. We have we were founded in 1981, so we've been around for quite a while, working with community-based social justice groups, but also community development, a lot of women's issues, a lot of arts issues. We cross mission area, and we can do that because we feel, we feel that our most important skill is asking questions. Um, that every community has a sense of values and how they care for each other. And that when you can understand what those values are, then you can harness the social relationships of fundraising underneath those values as opposed to coming in and putting them on top of them and saying, this is the way one, one must be. Uh-huh. So we work in a multitude of cultures to help that organization take the next steps it can to build a community of supporters that will reach out on its behalf. And can you say a little bit about yourself and how you found your way to Cause Effective and your your own experience as a fundraiser? Oh, oh my gosh. So I started out as a dancer, ended up in graduate school, and then had to get a job, and ended up in a nonprofit that incubated small arts groups and helped build them like the Big Apple Circus or groups like that. And I loved it. I loved having an impact and being able to give advice and guidance and being able to see change in the world as opposed to, you know, academia, which is intellectually stimulating, but, and so I went from there into social justice fundraising. I I went back and actually wrote my dissertation. I have a PhD, which most people don't know because it's not that relevant, but I wrote it on performing arts patrons and what the rhetoric about funding says about the social value of art. And I did it by interviewing 85 funders and listening to them talk about why and what their board said about funding art and why. And that taught me so much that from there, I kind of understood the way funders think. And that's where we started to special, I started to specialize in fundraising. Um, and I came to Cause Effective shortly after that and just loved the fact that we do what's called objective-based fund, uh, consulting in that. We go in and we ask questions like, what, where do you want to be? Where do you want to get to? And where, you know, in essence, what are your assets to help you get there? As opposed to the kind of consulting that says, here are the deliverables. Here are the things we'll do for you. Here are the tasks. Here are the tools. We have plenty of tools. But what we're about is helping each organization further realize its vision. Yeah, that's such an interesting point because in my now very limited experience with consulting, there just seems to be an emphasis on more, but not necessarily on why you need more. 
Absolutely. And, and we also talk about, because we work in the social justice field, that you have to think about your own values. You can't, uh, that's, you know, you let that go and it's a slippery slope all downhill. So yeah. you may be able to raise less and that may be reality and that is okay. Or there may be other avenues, but you have to have those important discussions because that's part of, of the ethos of who you are and how you can be effective and, and meaningful in your community. Yeah, I love that values-based fundraising. And so just for the listeners out there who are not that familiar with Cause Effective, is there a general range of organizations that you tend to work with? As we far tend as budget? to work with organizations, you know, they range from $80,000 a year to $80 million a year because what happens when you get into the larger range is that they're very much government funded. And mm-hmm. so they don't necessarily have a, a board that is relationship-based that understands that it's about being personal ambassadors. Sometimes the smaller organizations, they may have a smaller reach, but their board members understand the critical nature of every seat on that board. And we do do a lot of work with boards of all types of reach and all types of economic situations, but understanding that no organization is an island and and that an organization is successful insofar as it has tentacles out into various communities and the board is the first place that starts. That's so interesting because I've been talking with a couple of folks recently, and I'm just wondering, do you think it's possible to have a robust individual giving program without a very active board? No. Without an active board, no. But the board doesn't have to be wealthy. Right. I mean, there may be a limit to the amount of dollars in terms of the access, but I, I, I do not believe that a board, you know, that you have to have a, a Rockefeller board. I mean, nothing against Rockefeller, but I don't believe you have to have that to have a really active, robust fundraise, individual donor fundraising effort. But you have to have more than just the staff because mm-hmm. it, it's, it's, you can only, it's like a network. Like I can reach the 20 people that I know, but if I can get five of those people to reach the 20 people that they know, look at how the math goes. Right. It's, it's multiplying and not, yes. Yep. And so that's what you, and so you have to empower people that if they're passionate about the mission, they will be able to intrigue others. Mm-hmm. And also that it's not about selling others who don't care about that kind of a cause. There are enough people in the world that if somebody doesn't care about an environment at all, you may want to have conversations with them on a moral level, but they're not going to be your fundraising target. You're going to go for look for somebody who does care about environmental issues, but doesn't know about your group. Uh, I know. I say this so often. So I remember when I was an executive director and one of my board members just said something to the effect of, well, if everyone in New York just gave us a dollar. And I was like, first of all, that's ridiculous. Secondly, do you know everybody in New York? Thirdly, not everybody in New York cares about our cause. And so I think you're right, which is let's not waste our time with people who, whose causes aren't aligned with our own. Right. I mean, sometimes people do that with relatives. That's, you know, part of, you know, family yeah. gatherings. Sure. But in terms of fundraising, it's not, you know, the thing about fundraising is if you have a vital mission, there are so many possible people who would care yes. that, that it's, it's about how you spend your time. And if you spend more of it chasing that large gift that isn't going to come in and ignore what's, the, you know, what's around you, you know, we, we often say when we work with groups, it's like they've been in an invisible orchard and they just haven't seen the trees. Oh, I love that. An invisible orchard. I've never heard that, but it makes so much sense. So that's that's what we do. A few facts about it. You can find us on the web. We work individually with a little over 100 groups a year, and then we teach another 1,000 or so, mostly in the New York area. Our our funders will often pay for our work. 
so we have certain programs with funders and then there are other because we're a known entity we've been around for so long you can often go to your funder and say i want to build my capacity and cost effective is a known name for that and we we have many self-pay products that are anywhere from you know twenty five hundred dollars for a year of coaching mm-hmm. to thirty thousand dollars to completely overhaul the way your board functions wow um, so we will fit what you need to what you what you can bring to the table you know we understand that we are not we're not just dealing with the hospitals and the botanical gardens. In fact, we don't deal with those really at all. We're dealing with community-based groups that, that have a need, that have a vision, that are inspiring and passionate. And if they had all the money in the world, they wouldn't actually need cause-effective. Right. So we'll, well make I'll it make work. Sure. Yeah, well, I'll make sure to put all of your information in the show notes. But let's transition a little bit because this is like the really juicy yeah. stuff I want to get to. So. Cause Effective just put out a white paper called Money, Power, and Race, the Lived Experience of Fundraisers of Color. So before we get into the content, tell me a little bit about why you decided to, to embark on this study. Well, we have been supporting for most of our 40 years, we always said that we support nonprofit organizations. And through that, all boats rise in this sector. We started realizing as we were doing strategic planning that there was another actually two pieces of that that were important. One was the individuals that work both paid and volunteer in nonprofits, that there were certain sort of professional swaths like development directors or fundraising chairs of boards of directors, that if those positions work well, the whole function in the organization, you know, crackles. And that if we could support that, that's a pivot point for the organization's functioning. And so we started looking at what are we doing specifically to support development directors and development professionals who are not yet directors, so to speak. And the third piece was actually thought leadership. And what are we doing to further the conversation about what fundraising really means beyond just raising dollars and being, you know, tasks about writing a fundraising letter or running a campaign, what it really means for an organization's external relationships. And so we have been running a support group for directors of development of small shops. We've defined that as development departments of four and under at the, with the foundations that are now candid. We've been doing that. This is actually our 10th year of doing that. We call it the Breakfast Club. They meet for breakfast. It now has about 60 or 70 DODs coming. Um, and it runs for six months. And it's a combination of peer support and some instruction, but mostly peer support. We took that concept and we changed it a bit to be more intensively supportive. And for the last, we're just starting the third year, we run a peer learning program for social justice development directors, women social justice development directors, which is supported by the New York Women's Foundation. I have to give a shout out to them for having the foresight to invest in this. And that's a combination, these folks, we said this was for new people who are new to their jobs, like one month, one, one day to three years. And given how often development directors change their positions, that's many of them. We went from there and we said, what's next? What really needs our attention next? And we looked at this, we we thought, we want to look at the specific challenges of development professionals of color. And we were also looking at all of the calls in the field for leadership professionals of color and and what is happening. And they were leaving out development. You know, we even called Building Movement Project and we said, can you give us the data that you're getting on development professionals out of the whole study? They said, we didn't separate it out that way. And so we said, okay, we want to run programming and, I, and we want to run it in a way that the field tells us what it means. So I went to the New York Community Trust and I said, I want, we want to run this programming, but before we do that, we want to understand from the field 
what's going on. Please help us support this research. It's, you know, we said research, the trust said, oh, we're going to do a double blind. We said, well, let's call it field learning because we're mm-hmm. not scientists and we're, we're very clear that we're not scientists. We're practitioners. Right. And the trust staked us to this, which was, I have to give a shout out to New York Community Trust and to Pat Swan there because we're not researchers. We hadn't done a white paper before, but she believed that the programming that was going to come out of it was worthwhile given our history and that it was worthwhile to do this kind of field learning in advance of that programming. And then the field learning took on a life of its own. Got it. So as somebody who's been a practitioner in the field for 15 plus years, I, when I first read this, I was like, yes, finally, somebody's doing it because the development office is usually the least diverse, right? So you can find a pretty diverse program office, even finance and admin, but generally the development office tends to be pretty homogenous. And so I'm wondering, talk to me about some of the highlights that you unearthed through this study. One was that, which, you know, some of these are duh, but then you look at the implications of it, that, that when you enter into the development field, you are entering into a white space. And we heard more numerous accounts of, I was the only person of color in the room. And I just get used to it. That there's a generational divide in the senior people who are used to this as part of their life experience and the people who are entering the field now. And there's also a, one of the things that we hadn't expected, we thought, okay, senior and junior, but it's actually not quite that simple. There's, there's senior level people who have made their peace with what it means to be operating in a white space as a person of color. And there are people who are entering entry level where they're not necessarily at the level of interacting with board members and donors they're at the level of in intra-department. There's a mid-level career where you often switch jobs. You move from an associate or an assistant up to a manager where you start to go into the relationship-based level and you're often on your own at that point to navigate. You've lost your mentor or the person who, you know, you've changed jobs and you're trying to figure out. And the thing is that development is full of rejection. That's just fundraising. So parsing out what is rejection because people were just not interested? What is rejection because they're not taking me seriously because I'm a person of color? What, how is this playing out within my organization? And what is because the executive director is not comfortable with development, so she's, she or he is adding that onto the, de- the denigration of the development program versus the denigration of me as a person of color representing that? It's a stew of stuff. I just added, yeah. I answered a large question there. No, I, I mean, I think there, there's a lot to unpack here. So have, yeah. it seems that the mid-level fundraisers are really where you, you see some serious attrition. And I'm wondering if you had any conclusions with respect to people who continue on to become senior level development folks versus people who leave the field entirely in that mid-level transitional period. Interesting. So we, why they, they stick it out versus not. Some have to do with if they uh, find support from other people like them. And that's starting to change. You know, for years, the, uh, some of the associations paid attention to this and some did not, the Professional Fundraising Association. But that is starting to change at a national level, which is trickling down to the local level. Some, what happened we found with senior people is that they job hopped until they got to a situation they were they felt comfortable in. And that may be another reason why that adds to the two or three year tenure of the DOD is not just, you know, job 
you know, whether, whether they were making enough money or, but, but did they land in an agency where they felt supported as a person of, you know, person of development, professional color. So that's part of it. You know, as one person said, once I realized that I could make money at like decent money at this, and especially if people came out from, you know, from college and communication specialties, which is very close to development, when you do fundraising well, it's, it's, it's very easy to see the gains, you know, program the gains are, you know, can sometimes it's, it's hard to see the impact development, you know, the dollars are there. So it's easy to measure and to see. So it can be very rewarding and then it can be financially very rewarding. I'm wondering if you could speak at all to the sense of social capital. So just as my own experience, so data point of one, I, you know, happened to attend a boarding school that was predominantly white and very wealthy. And so through that experience, I think I, I kind of developed the the skills of navigating a space. And I'm wondering if you could speak to, you know, whether or not that that was something that you considered or looked at with respect to one's educational background or exposure to predominantly white spaces? Yeah, absolutely. It's a factor. There was a big divide between the people of color who had grown up in those experiences. I mean, in fact, one said, one actually said, I think this is an ideal career for people of color because we, and she was revealing her class background there, have grown up in mainly white spaces being the only one. So we're used to it. But that's only coming out of a certain class background. So there is an ease in being in those spaces and knowing how, and just being there and then also knowing how to navigate that. And people who were not had to learn that. And that's what you learn in that mid-level, mid-career level. And either you learn it and you figure it out or it's too uncomfortable, too much of a trigger. And you realize you can do something else with these skills that will not be as uncomfortable for you. So you alluded to a little bit about what it takes for folks to be successful in the long term. You mentioned, you know, mentorship, you mentioned peer support, you mentioned supportive executive directors. Are there any other any other salient aspects that you would mention with respect to the factors that set folks up for success? I think the 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 actually the peer support and, you know, as one woman of color told me, my circle of, my sister, my circle of sisters, because there will be incidents and you have to be able to parse, was that me? What, you know, what was that that I just experienced? And frankly, in this culture, we're not going to wipe those out uh, in my lifetime or yours either, probably. And so having that reality check so that, yes, we want to eradicate them, but when they do happen, we want to be able to, to parse them in a safe place, which may not be your workplace. You know, and because fundraising carries with it money and power, there's always the issues of this person is bringing $100,000 and how do I navigate that? It's not a neutral playing field. It's not that there's one right answer, but there will never be a neutral playing field given the money and power that donors have. Do you find that these issues are coming to the forefront much more given our current social and political climate? Well, I think this report is giving people a handle to talk about them. I'm not sure that they were coming to the forefront without this. Not to puff us up or anything, but 
we have gotten many, many reactions from fundraisers of color saying, oh, thank God, you're talking about this. You're, you're, you're naming it. This is exactly what I felt, or I'm going to send it to somebody else because this is what I experienced, but nobody is talking about this. And it's, it's partly because fundraising is this hidden subject and it's close to sales, which feels dirty. And it's about, you know, it's a, the fact that we need money feels dirty. We should just be able to do our work. And then that we're adding the equity layer in. I mean, if you look at all of the work that's being done about the nonprofit leadership pipeline, we're the only ones talking about fundraising as part of that. And I think it has to do with the, the assumed purity of mission in the nonprofit sector and the elevation of that, and that fundraising is, is somehow a, uh, a subject function as opposed to part and parcel of what it means to be, uh, to, to ask for support because we're all in this together. Yeah, that's so interesting because I remember as an executive director, I really tried to develop a culture of philanthropy amongst the whole team, which meant program folks as well. And I really remember getting so much pushback from program people as if, you know, that I was asking them to dirty themselves by, you know, talking to funders or like recognizing the fact that <laughs> that we're in the this business that raise funds for the work. And it, it's such an interesting kind of mind shift that people need to make around money and power and the necessity of running a nonprofit. Well, and you were in the right position to do that. That was the one thing we found, which, you know, and we actually should not have surprised me, but did, which was that the single most important factor in fundraisers of colors, um, job satisfaction and ability to do their work was the executive director. It was not the supervisor that was helpful, but by themselves, the supervisor could not influence the DEI climate of the organization. It was the ED. And it's because the fundraiser's position is, the ED is in between the fundraiser and the board and the fundraiser and the donors, as well as the ED often having their own issues. And when that person understood this stuff and was woke, so to speak, and could understood that their moral necessity of running interference, then there was a job with dignity that could be done well. And if not, the fundraiser of color was always struggling against it. So here at Nonprofit Lowdown, we like to give our listeners some actionable things. And so for the executive directors out there who are you know, wanting to run interference and wanting to create an environment where their fundraisers of color can be successful, what are some things that they could do? Well, first of all, I'm going to say that they should down, everybody should download the report, which has at least a page of concrete, actionable suggestions for executive directors, for nonprofit HR and talent managers, for supervisors of development staff and color, for board members, for individual and institutional funders, for white development staffers and allies, for professional fundraising associations, and for development professionals of color. We are very clear that this is not a solution that only rests with development professionals of color. So they should go to preparingthenextgeneration.org, www preparingthenextgeneration.org and look at the full report. Yep. Having said that, we'll link to that in the show notes as well. Great, great. I think the first thing is to to understand as an ED that stakeholders look to you, that your moral tone sets the, your moral voice sets the tone for the entire organization, that your actions speak really loudly and that it all falls down from you, whether you feel that you're looked at or not, you are. And so, very concretely, your actions need to be equitable and you, you need to pay 
closer supervision to the development department because of the issues of money and power that are inherent in that department's domain. One last thing that I'm thinking about is, you know, so much of the difficulty of being a fundraiser of color is navigating a predominantly white space of wealthy folks. And I'm just wondering, I mean, do you see as sort of wealthy people are starting to become more diversified? Do you see a shift in the donor space at all? Do you see people being more, quote unquote, woke? Do you see board members being more woke? Well, those are a couple of different questions there. Are there more donors of wealth of color? Yes. Are some agencies understanding that and accessing that? Yes. Are some agencies in a different planet? Yes. So that's one answer. And are some fundraising professionals of color able to bring their agencies to that? Yes. That's one answer. The second answer has to do with the white donor world. And I think that answer has more to do with the entire universe we live in, the Trump, you know, basically the conversation in the, in the national sphere that's been happening since 2016 obviously has changed some people's awareness. Certainly people, progressive people. I don't know about people in the middle necessarily, but so I think those are in some ways different questions. The, the third question has to do with board diversification. And there is, I still feel that there is a fallacy out there that to diversify one's board means to decrease its fundraising capacity and that that is an unquestioned biased assumption about the the capacity of people of color to fundraise, certainly from, if not inherited wealth, certainly from from the salary income. And that's something we try and address board by board that because we see that people, when they start talking about diversifying their board, they're talking about clients and that's, that's fine. And that's a good thing. That is not the same as diversifying the board for ethnicity reasons and looking for, you know, this is New York City. And then if it was New York City, it's Indianapolis. There are people of all races and ethnicities at all income levels. And if you have a program that is viable and, ra- and, and reasonable and you are doing this in a, in a realistic way, you can diversify your board without feeling that you have to change the fundraising profile of the board. I could not agree with you more, Judy. I actually have an ongoing conversation on my LinkedIn page about this very thing. And I also think even if you are looking to diversify your board and you're looking for perhaps you know, putting clients on the board, I actually think it's insulting to assume that they can't give something. Oh, of course they can give. And of yeah. course they can ask. That's um, right. You know, That's right. Yep. They may I mean, not make a $25,000 give or get. But sure. There, there is a, if, there, if you are putting them on the board, there's a value they are bringing. That's right. And I think everybody has to give and everybody has to get regardless of financial situation. You know, maybe it yep. looks like $20, but you still give. So last question. I know that Cause Effective has put out this really important study. And I'm wondering, can you speak a little bit to the programming that has come as a result of this? Yes. So we have a multi-pronged programming effort that we're entering into the pilot year of, and it is a combination of peer support of entry-level and mid-level fundraisers. It harnesses advanced fundraisers as both mentors, and what we're talking about is not the standard old-fashioned mentorship of you know, six months, you have to meet once a month, blah, 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 but understanding what are the pieces of 
support that middle and beginning fundraisers need because sometimes it's shadowing. Sometimes it's understanding a specific development opportunity. Sometimes it's coming in and, and getting access to the kinds of spreadsheets and the discounting that somebody in a large organization will do and understanding how to, but it's all kinds of pieces. Sometimes, and it also has a DEI component so that it's not just that you're sharing your experiences with somebody more advanced who's sharing their personal experiences, but that there's a systemic way of looking at how does this fit within the history of institutional racism in the United States. So we are planning on programming at multiple levels, and we have about six funders that we've lined up to put together this package. All of them understand that this is not a one-year fix. And one of them has made a two-year commitment, and the rest of them understand that clearly. So we're headed out there. We are also in partnership with Women in Development New York to supply mentors. We're in conversations with AFP, the New York Division, about their, with their IDEA committee, which is uh, Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Access, also to, to look at how to get the entire fundraising community to support this effort. Yeah. Well, Judy, the other piece is if you ever need former executive directors to be peers to executive directors in supporting development, do let me know. I will. I will. I definitely will. And so this is primarily focused at mid-level fundraisers. Is that right? Well, I don't know. I would say we're not, we're probably, I'd say it's three to eight years. Okay. So yeah, that's kind of mid. Okay. You know, the and first year or two, you're figuring out like how you run a database. But right. by about year three, you're figuring out if fundraising has a lot of hierarchies in it. It just does. And you have to be comfortable working in that kind of a universe. And there's nothing, I don't think there's any way around that. It needs to, needs to be, you know, those hierarchies need to be equitable. But there are hierarchies and there are people who are not interested in that. So you have to figure out, can I live within this kind of a universe? By year two or three, you figure that out. And then we want to get in there and say, if you want to be here, we want to help you. Right. You know, as I'm hearing you speak, Judy, I think the other question that's popping up in my mind, and maybe this is another conversation for another day, is, you know, of late in sort of the social justice space, we've been talking a lot about white supremacist culture. And in some ways, I think fundraising actually and development very much is about propping up the norms of white supremacist culture at the same time that as a progressive community, we're trying to break it down. And so is there an inherent tension in that? Well, I'd say I agree with that. I think there are other models and there are some philanthropists, major philanthropists, I'm thinking about Abby Disney and other, you know, some big folks like that who are in those other models. Again, it just, you know, ultimately you have to decide how far as an organization you want to go. And if you want to move only within the other models universe, then you say, okay, this is how far it's going to take me. And then you may need to have some earned income, quite frankly. Or you may say, we want 80% of these other models and for 20%, we'll suck it up. Those are all organizational decisions, individual decisions. That, and there's no right or wrong. The only wrong thing is to not have that conversation and end up somewhere. And then you wake up and say, oh, where did my values go? Mm, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a tricky, tricky place to be, but I, I agree with you that it's all about having the conversation and being intentional about your choices. Yeah, yeah. So, Judy, thank you so much for your time. I will make sure to link to everything in the show notes so people can learn more about you and Cause Effective and certainly get their hands on this study. It's very, very important. I really great. thank you for being on the show. Okay, great. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.